Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global SALT conferences, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience into a window into the minds of subject matter experts. And thank you for joining us. If you're joining us in the United States the day after the election, which is still ongoing, um, this will be obviously something that continues throughout the week, but we appreciate you waking up early and, and joining us. Um, we're thrilled to welcome you to the second installment of our pandemic venture investment series, where top entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders dive deep into the challenges and opportunities arising from the pandemic crisis and discuss breakthrough technologies that address issues from the coronavirus prevention and cure to social distancing and food supply. This series is presented in partnership with Our Crowd, which is a leading global venture investment platform. Today's episode, Next Generation Mobility in a Post-Pandemic World, features Michael Dick, Chief Executive Officer of C2A, Graham Gullens, Vice President of Business and Corporate Development of Superpedestrian, and Adi Pinas, Chief Executive Officer of Broadman 17, moderated by our crowd's mobility lead, Yakir Makhlouf. If you have any questions during today's talk, please enter them at the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And now I will turn it over to Yakir to conduct today's interview. Thank you, Joe, and uh, thank you for that kind intro. Uh, and of course, thanks for the opportunity to be part of Salt Talks. Uh, to our audience today, just reiterating what Joe mentioned, uh, welcome to our discussion today about next generation mobility in a post-pandemic world. Uh, this is, of course, a part of a complete series uh, of Salt um, in, in partnership with our crowd. Um, so, the mobility sector is among uh, the hardest hit due to COVID-19, with automotive manufacturing ground to a halt, ride hailing down 75%, and public transportation usage rates down, uh, sorry, seeing one of the greatest declines in history with a very slow recovery rate. Uh, we have three great speakers joining us today to discuss the challenges and opportunities that the pandemic brought to the mobility sectors. Our first speaker, as Joe mentioned, is Adi Pinchas, co-founder and CEO of Broadman 17. Broadman 17 is actually Adi's third company uh, founded by him uh, in the computer vision space, preceded by Vigilant Technologies in 98, Just Visual in 2006, and Broadman 17 in, uh, founded in 2016. Adi, thank you for joining us today. Can you share a few words uh, uh, to our audience about Broadman 17? Of course, thank you very much for inviting us today. In Broadman 17, we're developing advanced uh, uh, driving assistance systems for vehicles. So features like automatic emergency brake, adaptive cruise control, uh, self-parking vehicles, and so on. This is the functions and technologies that we are developing with the mission of taking these advanced technologies from the premium vehicles, uh, from the premium models to the mass market in order to improve safety, comfort, and so on. Thank you, Adi. Our second speaker is Graham Gullins. Graham is the VP of Business and Corporate Development at Superpedestrian. Graham has built and invested in multimodal transportation companies for the past five years, and he sits on the board at Zoomcar, India's largest shared car rental company. Previously, he was also the co-founder and COO of Lyft Matrix that was sold to Hootsuite. Graham, 
great having you on board with us today. Uh, maybe a few words about Super Pedestrian to our audience. Sure, thanks, Yakir. Nice to meet everyone. Um, Super Pedestrian is first and foremost a technology and engineering company. The company got its start having spawned out of MIT seven years ago, and we're based in Boston. Uh, we've focused on the core technology that we call vehicle intelligence, which is an autonomous maintenance system that lives inside microelectric vehicles. So anything that uh, touches the electronics or mechanical system of small vehicles, such as e-bikes and e-scooters, our technology allows the system to measure, detect, and prevent the most common challenges from happening. In the context of mobility, that improves the safety of these vehicles and lowers the cost of operating. So specifically, we find ourselves in the micromobility space where those are the two biggest challenges in the industry, addressing the core safety needs for cities and riders in micromobility, addressing the core cost side uh, and challenges of making this business sustainable into the future. Sorry. Thanks, Graham. We'll definitely touch upon some of those points later on in the discussion. Uh, last but not least, we have Michael Dick joining us. Michael is the co-founder and CEO of C2A. Michael has 25 years of senior level leadership experience, previously co-founding NDS, which was acquired by Cisco for $5 billion back in 2012. Michael served as the VP of service delivery for five years and is regarded as a pioneer in embedded network and content security. He has global experience working on, on large scale systems that protected billions of dollars of content for customers, including BSkyB, Foxtel, StarTV, SkyTalia, DirecTV, and others. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Uh, can you briefly introduce our audience to C2A and what is it that you do? Thanks, Yakir. Nice to be here. So um, C2A um, does in-vehicle cybersecurity. Um, as the previous speakers have described, vehicles are becoming more and more connected and are offering all types of autonomous services, whether it's ADES type systems or automatic parking, etc. So imagine on the one hand, you have computers in the vehicle that are controlling the safety systems like the steering wheel uh, and the brakes. And on the other hand, you have these cars that are connected to the internet, um, offering all types of services, online services, uh, vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, et cetera. So uh, you can imagine that the threat of outsider attack into these vehicles is very high. And that's what C2A is here to try and prevent. From the various different attack surfaces in the vehicle, we have developed products to be able to protect those vehicles against attack. And not only um, prevent uh, attacks, but also to monitor and to manage the in-vehicle cybersecurity lifecycle over the 10 to 15 years that the car has to be on the road uh, on an ongoing basis. So that's basically in a nutshell what we do. Thanks for that, Michael. Uh, so with no further ado, let's get right into it and talk about mobility and COVID-19. Uh, starting with, when we're usually thinking about the future of mobility, autonomous cars come to mind. And the past 12 to 16 months have really not been easy for AV development worldwide, to say the least. Uh, we've seen AV timelines and launch dates being pushed back by several years, uh, less capital directed towards the development of new AVs and an overall conservative tone sounded from car manufacturers, 
manufacturers in regards to AV deployment. Uh, Adi, I'll start with you. As I know, you had more than a few discussions about, uh, about this topic with OEMs and tier ones. Can you take us through what goes on behind the scenes of AV de development and how did COVID-19 play a role in that? So I think in the case of the autonomous vehicles, uh, what happened is that like in many other cases, COVID accelerated decisions that should have been made uh, a lot before. Um, for a couple of years, the industry understood that autonomous vehicle is going to be a huge challenge, bigger than initially anticipated. It's going to be more expensive than, exp uh, than uh, originally budget. And we saw that even Waymo by Google raised uh, a capital in order to make it happen. Uh, they also realized that it's very complex and we saw for, for a long time, every other week, two companies announcing on a new alliance in order to work together and be able to do that. Impossible alliances in some cases. Um, but then COVID happened and it forced everyone to look into reality and see that uh, we need to push the timelines. Uh, we need to think about it again. And today what we see more, I think, solid plans, even from a business plan perspective, you will see that most of the thinking and the work today is about trucks where you have very clear ROI, less about robotaxi, definitely less about passenger uh, vehicles. Um, so, Everyone or many are regrouping, creating better, more solid plans, and we'll continue with that work. Thanks for that, Adi. Now, I'm sure for a startup working in the space, much like Broadband 17, that could be that could prove challenging. Uh, can you elaborate on some of the challenges from a startup perspective and possibly share even uh, some of the opportunities that you recognize during this period? Yeah, so earlier this year, of course, uh, COVID created, the outbreak created a big confusion in the market, especially for some of the OEMs and the tier one suppliers. They had bigger issues uh, in front of them from uh, supply chains to sales, uh, manufacturing challenges and so on. But then exactly as we said, because of autonomous vehicle is going to be delayed, now they are focusing again on the ADAS, on the advanced uh, driving syst assistance systems, uh, what we are frequently calling the level one to level three systems. Um, so now that there are not going to be anytime soon autonomous vehicle, they realize that we need to take care of the driver to create systems that are going to make the car more efficient, more comfortable, uh, safer, of course. And that's not only in the integrated solutions. This is uh, beyond integrated solutions. What we see now is that a fleet management are looking to add these technologies as an aftermarket or after sale by adding these type of technologies to monitor professional drivers. Some insurance companies are talking about regular uh, passenger uh, driver, um, but definitely for the professional drivers, adding these systems uh, to monitor the drivers and to create better training plans, to create better safety scores uh, for insurance purposes. Um, so few of the OEMs and the tier ones actually realized that uh, they put aside for too long uh, these ADAS technologies and now they have a gap 
uh, to close. So they are working with us uh, to start and deploying the level one to level three solutions until the level four, level five will eventually reach in uh, perhaps in a decade or so. Got it. Thank you, Adi. Um, of course, not only autonomous cars have been affected by uh, COVID-19, and as people were forced to either stay at home uh, or follow so strict social distancing limitations, the entire way in which people and goods move around is, uh, has changed. Some would say that they changed for good. Graham, can you, uh, moving on to you, can you share some thoughts on these changes and how will urban mobility change in the coming years? Sure, thanks, Yukir. Um, there's an adage that you never wanna let a crisis go wasted. So with cities and public policy, things are typically difficult to change, they take time, but this crisis has presented an opportunity because it gives the power back to policymakers to change the status quo for their city streets, specifically around transportation. And that's starting to happen quite rapidly now. So there's really two major impacts from a city policy perspective that is, um, been accelerated by COVID. Number one, their ability to change the policy, right? Typically it's been hard to change policy, but the time it takes to influence it can be years. Um, but now we're specifically seeing cities accelerate those timelines on how they allocate street space and manage traffic. So across the US and Europe, primarily there's a real willingness to change streets. Some examples are there's a lot more open air dining uh, and retailers moving into the streets, New York, uh, is a good example of this. Cities and retailers are given space now on the streets, replacing either lanes or car parking. In the UK, there's been a huge appetite for infrastructure spending on bike lanes. They're committing to invest 250 million pounds on bike lanes to support micromobility. And then when there was temporary bike lanes uh, put up in place for the pandemic, uh, they're now becoming permanent. People are seeing the revalue and cities are appreciating that long-term stability. Um, so. And then one more soundbite is uh, Paris actually is uh, taking an aggressive stance. They're, they're taking back half of the parking spaces from cars in the city, which is around 70,000 spaces. So it's an incredible amount of city land that's being dedicated back to um, mobili better mobility options than the car and other transportation options. Um, and this is, appears to be sticking because policy is pushing towards making those permanent changes. And that's the accelerating factor that COVID has had on mobility. The second um, of the two major ways in which it's having impact is travel patterns has changed. You alluded to it um, in your introduction, Yakir, but everyone knows public transit is down massively um, and they're having to cut budgets because of the shortfalls even more so than they can. So cities are, need to promote other alternative options. Ride hailing is unfortunately not necessarily the solution because there's still um, that you know, other person within in the car with you. And we've seen that down as well. The two best mobility options in a pandemic world are driving your own personal car because it's perceived to be safer. However, cars have been in a you know, 10 year fight against uh, personal cars because of the traffic and safety reasons. And so cities are really promoting more options for mo mobility, specifically micromobility, because micromobility is preferable when you're in the open air environment and you don't face the public health challenges of you know, uh, public transit with people being close to each other. And then driving, of course, is, is pollution. So micromobility, specifically e-mobility, has been accelerated by way of the, um, by, by COVID. So... 
you just alluded to uh, micromobility and, and challenges. So I would like to ask you about specific challenges for micromobility due to COVID. Uh, what, what did you experience during that, peri that period? Sure. Well, um, it, there's always short-term challenges, but also open opportunities. So I'll talk about kind of what immediately happened uh, following COVID and it presented yep. both opportunities and challenges. And then we'll, we'll look at kind of what, what challenges exist long-term. Sure. Um, you know, when COVID uh, you know, forced folks to lock down, um, it actually caused people who had not experienced bikes in a long time or scooters for the first time to try those new options. So specifically med medical professionals who are used to taking the bus train or driving and carpooling were now experiencing the efficiencies advantage of, and advantages of micromobility. Um, but that same constituency now also saw the dangers of car dominated streets. So what you're seeing is the pandemic has caused new people to experience it, promote it. And then, you know, that's also suggesting, you know, a, a path away from car dominated streets. Um, within micromobility in the short term, there's, there's a lot of positives. And then I'll express the challenges as well. Positives, number one, there's longer trips, um, meaning, you know, a lot of the uh, usage we see on our vehicles, specifically e-scooters are a mile and a half to two miles. This is a 50 to 100% increase than pre-pandemic. Um, Number two is that people are using them for a broader array of purposes. It's not just recreation or tourism. They're using it in their day-to-day, -day, again, uh, away from the you know, public transportation. And there's a much more diverse set of demographics and trip purposes uh, being used. So that's the, the tailwinds that micro, um, the pandemic has provided micromobility. The challenges for micromobility specifically are to making sure these changes stick. So building resilience, resiliency into transportation so we don't go back to the monoculture of cars. Um, so that's number one. Cities do need to work on their public policy, but they're getting um, you know, um, the support of businesses and, and restaurants who see the advantages of people um, riding bikes to a restaurant. So in, in New York, actually, restaurants used to not like bike racks in front of the restaurants. They'd prefer car spots. Now they actually promote uh, bike racks because it'll bring more people in than, than parking spots. So we have to make sure these changes stick. Uh, another challenge is that we need to make sure these transportation options serve a broader diversity of travelers. There are, you know, scooters and e-bikes fit a large audience, but not all audiences. Um, there will be transportation options into the future that I think will stick long-term that we've not seen on the road today. And that's what we need to focus on. Thank you, Graham. Um, Michael, moving on to you. Uh, automotive cybersecurity and COVID-19. Tell us what's the connection. Michael? Yeah. Oh, yeah. perfect. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, so, um, you know, even earlier on this year, before COVID, uh, February timeline, um, ISO published the 21434 specifications with regard to in-vehicle cybersecurity and also uh, lifecycle management. And so uh, also the UNECE WP29 was published uh, and is going to become uh, legislated at the end of the year for those uh, countries that belong to that, uh, that organization, which means that if somebody wants type approval for a vehicle in their country, they're going to have to be compliant with the UNEC UP29 uh, specification. Now, this all happened before COVID, and the fact of the matter is that that's continuing. In other words, whatever happens after COVID, 
uh, any car that is manufactured from 2022, 2023 is going to have to be compliant with these specifications, which means that uh, car manufacturers and the tier ones, all the, the whole industry uh, has to move towards uh, cybersecurity and life cycle management. Um, so I think there was a bit of a um, panic in the beginning of COVID, how are we gonna do this with COVID? But uh, we found that, um, especially with uh, C2A, seeing that most of these, most of our systems that supply solutions to um, cybersecurity and lifecycle management are cloud-based. Um, uh, we can offer it as a service to our customers. And they've learned now over time that they can be completely independent and they can uh, implement whatever they need to implement on a remote basis. Whereas, you know, in the past, this was very um, manpower, uh, used to use up a lot of manpower. You need a lot of services to you know, go do these investigations, et cetera. We can now do it automatically on uh, through a system that is uh, cloud-based for them. Um, so, so for us, it's been um, interesting because uh, it hasn't really affected the uh, investigation of the tier ones and the OEMs into these new technologies. And, uh, you know, doing um, proof of concepts or stuff like that, we can continue all that doing that remotely. We don't have to be, um, yeah, and they don't have to be actually, um, you know, they can do it remotely as well. So, so from that perspective, it's been, um, it's been easier for us. It is difficult working, uh, you know, without meeting people for the first time sometimes, uh, you know, over Zoom, etc. Yep. But uh, I think the world is getting used to it, and uh, you know. Yeah, I think I think we all need to get used to this new normal. Trip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think actually this this was actually a very insightful thought to to think that most of us usually think that uh, due to COVID the entire automotive industry stopped, but actually understanding that cybersecurity and the cyber threats are still imminent and, and are progressing. Um, although the, the majority of the industry kind of put to a halt, it, it's an interesting thought and, and just makes it that much more uh, imminent in comparison to maybe autonomous uh, uh, cars and all of that. Uh, can you tell us more about the, the new regulation and what do they actually mean uh, for an automotive, from an automotive manufacturer perspective? Yeah, so, you know, it's actually quite uh, interesting if you go to, if you speak to a car manufacturer today and you say to them, um, let's say, you know, there's been a vulnerability published. Um, does that vulnerability affect you in any of the models that you have on the road? Um, and if it does affect you, uh, you know, which, what, what can you do about it and which models are affected, etc. All the OEMs, car manufacturers, they don't really know the answer to that question. When a vulnerability becomes available, they have to go do research, have to investigate, have to try and find uh, all the development teams around the world, uh, all their uh, suppliers. You know, it's a very complicated uh, supply chain. Um, tier ones, tier twos, tier threes, all supplying into the same vehicle. Uh, and it's, it takes them weeks to actually uh, to find, you know, to know if they're affected or not. We actually, um, we had a market survey about uh, six weeks ago that came up with us that it takes them weeks. We spoke to many OEMs and tier ones, it takes them weeks to actually do that investigation. 
which is obviously not acceptable. Um, especially as you know, you get more connected and, um, and there's more software in the vehicle. There's going to be dozens of vulnerabilities on an ongoing basis. And this is for the 10 to 15 years that the car is in the, on the road. And it's now become compulsory for the car manufacturers to actually run that in-vehicle cybersecurity lifecycle management in an organized and automated way. Uh, and because of the complication of the of the number of par partners involved and how they all communicate with each other, et cetera. So, um, so this becomes a difficult thing to implement. And, uh, you know, in our survey that we ran, our market research, one of the uh, complaints was also that, you know, there are no tools available to, to, to allow them to be able to do this type of uh, sure. uh, life cycle management. And so, so that's what we, you know, luckily we've been investing the last three years in um, trying to develop this product that has now become compulsory for the market. So we're seeing a lot of uh, traction um, and a lot of interest on an ongoing basis since we launched this a few weeks ago. Um, and, um, you know, the, as I mentioned before, they won't be able to get a car manufacturer from 2022 in some countries and 2023 in others will not be able to get type approval unless they can show that they're compliant with these specifications. So you, you've actually alluded to several interesting points here. And, and I think the most interesting one is your ability to actually uh, um, cut the need for resources, cut times, um, actually make uh, manufacturers and, and uh, um, the suppliers more independent. So this actually brings me maybe to the next point. And I, and I would love to open up the discussion at this point uh, and talk about more about um, cost efficiency and, and open up the discussion to a DN Graham as well. Um, can you maybe um, kind of talk us a bit about cost-effectiveness aspects in your verticals, Adi? Um, how is Broadman 17 solution uh, could address maybe cost-effectiveness solution in uh, fleets and, and gram for micromobility? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, co cost is a big issue. Most of the features that I mentioned, uh, they are not hard to sell. A uh, self-parking vehicle, of course, everyone wants it. It's uh, the big issue is uh, a, a, the gap between how much it costs and how much people are willing to pay for it. Uh, same for the insights from the fleets. Uh, cost is not only uh, the amount of dollar, it's also the power consumption of these uh, systems, the heat that they generate, the size, um, and so on. So we are trying to work on all these dimensions. Uh, other forces are also important here. So regulation, for example, the moment that regulators decided in Europe and then uh, in Japan that all new models needs to have uh, automatic emergency brake. So now the automakers, uh, once that is a regulation, they need to find uh, a mass market pricing for that. It's no longer an advanced uh, a premium feature. Um, so we have uh, the drivers that like the features very much. We have the regulations as another strong force that is driving the market forward. And the third one is NCAP. NCAP are publishing new safety standards sure. every year. So if... Um, an automaker would like to maintain his four or five star safety stars. 
And NCAP are now stating that automatic emergency brake as a part of the reverse camera is a must. Then again, they need to find solutions. They need to find cost-effective solutions in order to implement it. So here, um, in order to achieve that, we are taking a completely new approach uh, to these systems, um, taking a software approach, working with commodity hardware, uh, creating AJI architectures in order to create at uh, a bottom line, a system that uh, is complying with the regulation and NCAP, but still has a fraction of the cost of what it, it is today. Thanks, Eddie. Graham? Sure. Uh, so micromobility specifically costs is very important, but actually there's two groups of micromobility and, and it's more important in the shared case. So micromobility as a personal consumer vehicle type has been around for you know 100 plus years with a bike and then kick scooters, which you see a lot of kids on these days. So micromobility on the personal side has not been impacted by costs in the last, you know, decades, a couple of decades, because the cost of owning a bike is relatively low, the cost of maintaining a bike is relatively low. And that has not been a challenge because the cost of keeping that vehicle on road is internalized by the user and the consumer itself. When shared mobility, specifically micro mobility, became such a hot trend, um, you know, with the introduction of bike sharing across the world, but also uh, electrification of e-scooters and e-bikes, uh, costs became everything. Right. And the industry is still at its infancy where it could be a make or break for the industry. If you don't figure out the cost side of running a micro mobility fleet, then micro mobility is going to be more challenging to have a long term sustainable life unless it's subsidized, which is not the goal of um, cities necessarily. And the reason why shared micro mobility is so different than personal bike or scooter ownership is because those costs now borne by the shared fleet. And you now have significant costs for labor. Uh, you have higher use and abuse for vehicles. So the cost of the, the vehicle lifetime becomes challenged. And so when you can't internalize those costs to a single consumer and they get spread out, spread out over a fleet, it makes the business hard to run. And so that's what we focused on for the seven years that Super Pedestrian has been in business, which is lowering the cost side of running fleets specifically to micromobility. If you think about the two biggest costs, it's labor of keeping your fleets on road, service maintained and generating revenue. And two is vehicle lifetime. Those are the two things that have challenged the industry. So that's what our core system has been developed to address, which is to lower the cost of labor for keeping the vehicles on road and safe and repaired and maintained you should address that through technology, right? Technology is scalable. The technology is inside the vehicle as well. And so if the vehicle is able to do things that a human would otherwise do, uh, inspect whether or not the brakes are safe to ride on, make sure the core electronics in the system won't overheat or fry because they've been left out in the rain or have been going up and down hills. If technology can do that, now the costs of running your fleet uh, get lowered because labor is now cut in half or more. And so you don't need to staff up teams to go in and visually inspect. Plus, technology can do a better job than a human can do because it can look inside the hood without a human going in with a scope. And so technology addresses the labor costs of running micromobility fleets. And it also is able to extend the lifetime of vehicles because it's able to detect when failures can happen in the first place. It, it knows when 
um, that you may run into the end of a life for a battery pack or a motor. It can, you know, autonomously, uh, our, our autonomous maintenance layer can alert us to that before it happens in the first place. Again, going back to safety and cost side of things. So technology addresses the core costs of running micromobility. And we're at the forefront of that for a relatively new industry that's trying to, you know, navigate, you know, being a sustainable option for, you know, citizens in cities. Maybe maybe you can expand on that because I think that we have uh, a lot of investors or potential investors uh, in, in micromobility and mobility as a whole uh, uh, tuning in. And they're probably all familiar with Bird and Lime. And since their uh, uh, inception, uh, we've seen a lot of venture capital money flowing into uh, those companies. Now, they have initially maybe worked with off-the-shelf scooters, but they have since evolved to introducing new uh, models. Where would be so? So they are also claiming for cost efficiency and, of course, uh, enhanced uh, operation operational optimization. So maybe you can contribute your thoughts on that uh, in regards to super pedestrian. Uh, where is the actual value uh, coming from? Sure. So the space is super exciting from an investment perspective and from a city perspective because of the demand for micromobility. Um, when uh, vehicles were electrified, specifically e-scooter, and now we're seeing more e-bikes on the fleet side, the demand was uh, multiples higher than bike sharing schemes. Once you lost the dock and once you powered these vehicles with um, you know, electronics, the demand was much higher. So the, the shared scooter has been one of the vehicles of choice. You're seeing cities across the globe, there's two to five trips for that single vehicle type, which is pretty impressive in terms of demand and revenue generation relative to the asset value. The asset value is, you know, hundreds of dollars, not thousands of dollars. Again, cheaper than an e-bike, which also makes it more sustainable. Um, so that's why the venture investors, you know, poured money into the space is because the demand was like this, fa faster adoption than ride hailing. Uh, the revenue growth was off the charts. You put scooters on the road, you'll get, you know, rides that day and you'll be at, you know, full demand within a couple of weeks. Um, so it was an incredible promise but uh, the cost side challenges of running the business lagged the revenue growth. And that's where we've been for the last year or year and a half, which is all micromobility operators need to focus on the cost side because you have to prove that this business can be sustainable before you can keep growing top line. The land grab strategy doesn't necessarily work unless you're running a, a business model that's sustainable. Specific to super pedestrian, while the industry was scaling, going to the land grab strategy, we spent our time focusing on uh, a vehicle that could operate at 50% or lower costs than what all other fleets is taking our core embedded patented technology and stick it into the vehicle type, this shared scooter. So we emerged as a second mover with better technology and the advantages are safety, which you know helps us win uh, city permits and partner with cities, but also um, lo lower cost of operations, right? And that, that is the fundamental difference um, when you can lower your costs by that amount or more, as we've done across our deployments, your market and the promise becomes so much bigger for micromobility. What it really started at was, you know, thousands of cities around the world down to even towns will have micromobility. Where it's been constrained to is only large cities can support micromobility because large cities have the demand, but small cities can't support it. Um, we've now proven that our cost side of the fleet can operate in a much bigger TAM because you can go into markets with you know, less demand uh, or, and less density. You can go more distributed population. You're still serving the needs of micromobility, but you're now serving 
you know, thousands of cities rather than the top 25 cities yeah. of the yeah. world, yeah. which have that high demand. So that's, that's the difference in lowering costs. Thank you, Graham. Um, I want to, again, maybe kind of allude back to a point that we've made before. Um, so we have here three leaders of three different startups, two of you based in Israel, one in Boston. How did COVID-19 and the outbreak and, and all of the uh, uh, lockdowns uh, and, and the ban on flights and all of that affect, affect your ongoing and new relationships with clients abroad? Uh, open style, everyone, uh, if you want to, Michael, Adi, Graham, take it away. I'll jump in real quick. Um, it, I'll, I'll answer slightly different like here, here, which is the biggest difference I've seen is that uh, hiring folks. So our company is uh, doubled in size in terms of headcount. I think we're closer to 100 now um, in the last six months. So mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic accelerated our ability to hire. The interesting point here is that we've not specifically required people to be located in Boston. And prior to COVID, we were much more focused on that, you know, finance yeah. teams, ops teams, HQ, centralized in Boston. Now, when we've gone out and hired from the industry and other talent, we ask people where they live, but it's not necessarily a requirement. So it means the talent pool for us is much larger, right? Mm -hmm. We can go mm -hmm. international, we can go East Coast, West Coast, yep. Central. Um, and so it's now a afterthought um, you know, into the third conversation you have in hiring of where you're located. And we, you know, don't necessarily ask people to, to move into where we are. So it's, I think that's been great because it opens up the talent pool. Amazing. Adi, if you want to tackle both uh, either relationship or operational point of the uh, effects of COVID. I think uh, well, something that uh, helped us uh, very much to scale is uh, the ability to do remote demos. So um it, it, before covid it was unheard of uh that uh, if if the customer wants to see a demo you need to go to the customer and show how it works after all it's a very large oem uh or a tier one um but now they can't meet us even if you will go their uh, corporate regulations are not allowing them so what we worked back in March and April is to create a bulletproof a DIY demos and showcases. And so today, every other week, we are sending a, a demo kit uh, to New Zealand, to Australia, uh, to Korea. The customer on the other side is uh, assembling it and it works. And so from that perspective, a lot easier to scale now. I, just to comment briefly on that, I think it's fascinating to use the word bulletproof because demos <laughs> naturally go wrong, right? Yeah. You know, they go wrong not when you're testing it in your office, but when someone it's in someone else's hands. So I think that's that's super important. I like that. It's a lot more convincing also to the customer because it's not yeah. like a magic show. If he puts the uh, assembly by himself, driving, then it works. Then it's creating even better confidence for the demo. Michael, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, with us, um, we, when we do a demo, for example, a remote demo, it's not really a demo. It's not like a demo kit. It's the real thing. We are actually have an instance of uh, AutoSec, which is the in-vehicle lifecycle management system. And the customer actually sees a live implementation of the system. This is what he's going to get. It's not a demo. It's the real thing. Uh, and we keep on updating that on an ongoing basis. Um, so, you know, he sees the latest and greatest and he can play with it and he can see all the features um, by himself. And he can very 
soon, you know, until now, until COVID, uh, it's been common in the automotive industry for many companies all over the world to offer services. You know, they said they'll put a whole lot of people on site and you'll be able to offer services mm-hmm. to do investigations, to do integration. Sure. To do, um, you know, for example, in cybersecurity, the most two important things are visibility and traceability. So you know what you have and that you, if, you know, if something is published, you can trace it to see where it affects you, where it doesn't affect you. This has been offered traditionally to the market by having lots of people doing this work uh, for the car manufacturers, uh, which is not relevant anymore. It's not practical anymore because you can't have people flying around the world anymore and uh, everyone's trying to save money. You can't have these uh, herds of people, hordes of people trying to uh, you know, do these investigations, etc. So once you can have a real life system on, you know, remotely or on cloud or on premise that they can use. Um, so they see firstly that they can be independent and they don't have to be dependent on multiple companies to give them that visibility and traceability. Uh, so it's practical and also saving them money. So let's say um, it's an interesting uh, development. Thank you for that. Um, so maybe as an ending note, before we move on to the Q&A questions, and I see that we have a few, um, what is the biggest trend that our audience and investors in the space generally uh, should be aware of in regards to your vertical? Uh, Michael, let's start from you. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned before, I think that 2020 is the year of cybersecurity for automotive. You know, there's been a lot of talk for many years already, maybe 10 years, people have been talking about cybersecurity for automotive, uh, you know, from the, you know, there were hacks demonstrated, mm-hmm. how important it is, and everyone said how important it is, etc. But there, there haven't been any implementations of advanced cybersecurity on the production line. Uh, and the market was getting a little bit nervous, you know, everyone's talking about it, why is it not happening? Uh, so finally, we've arrived at the time where it started to happen, and that's the year of 2020. That's because of legislation, number one. Mm-hmm. Of course, the timing is now with uh, both ISO and the UNEC um, publications, um, which are now going to become compulsory for the um, for the uh, OEMs and the tier ones for the industry to uh, to implement. So that's the first thing, and the second thing is the issue of. Um, you know, the way that we approach, the different approach that uh, is going to be, um, that is different now in the sense that now it's more important to be able to work remotely, to be able to work independently and to be able to save money. So um, so I think that um, uh, we start, we're actually starting to see it happen. Many of the OEMs that are putting out uh, requests for quotes, for new systems, for new vehicles, new production, start of production in the next couple of years, are now including, you know, um, large quantities of cybersecurity requirements as part of that RFQ. Um, and we, um, we're seeing them coming out now one after another, um, RFQs that include all the cybersecurity requirements and lifecycle management requirements. Um, so, uh, so there's a big change. 2020 is the going vehicle cybersecurity. Thank you for those insights. Adi, uh, can you contribute uh, a trend for our audience? I think, uh, you know, earlier this year, I met a very few worried people that asked me if this is the end. 
this is the end of software and virtual and so on, and they, they couldn't be more wrong. Right. There is no way back. Uh, vehicles are becoming a software platform, and especially the automakers, they are looking on the great product that Tesla are developing yep. by writing their own software. And in most of their cases, they are getting the software from companies like us through the tier ones, which means they get it in three years delay mm -hmm. and they understand the gap. Um, they are starting to think about the vehicle as a software platform to see how they can work with companies like us that are developing AI and software and improve their product significantly from what they are today. So there is no way back. Uh, vehicles are going to become smarter and better. Thanks, Adi. Graham, a trend yeah, uh, in micromobility? Perfect transition because uh, 2021 is all about the year of software for micromobility. So firmware on the vehicle, on the boards itself, and then uh, cloud maintenance, right? The, the software that doesn't have to happen in real time on the vehicle, but can you know, be a little bit more persistent on the cloud. Uh, that's not something that has ever been part of micro mobility. That's been, you know, micro mobility is vehicles that are left on the street and need human maintenance and touch and care. Um, you know, the time to lower the cost is now. The land grab strategy was uh, going away at the end of 2019, and the impact from COVID accelerated that transition away from scale at all costs down to lower cost of operations. And the way you do that is through software and connected smart vehicles. Thank you. Um, so I do see here a question uh, and I do urge our uh, audience, if you want to have uh, your questions uh, answered live, please do submit them in the QA box, but I'll address one of those. Um, we have a question here. Will the cost of the pandemic make it harder for countries to fund major mobility projects? And if yes, how will this affect VC mobility plays? Open mic. <laughs> So I think uh, what we see that especially the big five, uh, Japan, Korea, China, the automakers countries, Germany, US, they consider the automotive industry to be a national treasure and they protect them very much. They, there is a lot of knowledge, a lot of money over there uh, and they are going to protect it. They are going to find ways, they monitor very closely this industry and it, they're going to make it work for them. Yeah, that's true. It's also, um, you know, we're getting into, um, as Adi mentioned, there's n there is no way back. I mean, you know, this is, um, this is in order to compete, the car manufacturers are gonna have to put in that investment and the tier ones are gonna have to put in that investment in order to be able to compete. Otherwise they, you know, someone else will eat their lunch. So, um, so I think from that perspective, it's going to become even more important for them in order to be able to compete and keep up their, um, you know, they've been through a, a serious knock the last uh, few months. In order to be able to recover, they, they, they're going to, you know, this is going to be, uh, this is the only way forward for them. Yeah. Lastly, I'll add that in micro mobility, it's much more set by the specific city rather than the country. Uh, so what you're seeing is the city's budgets for mobility is constrained and typically there's not a, an ability to fund uh, projects such as micromobility. So from an investor's perspective and from a micromobility operator's perspective, it's again, allowing private companies to be sustainable so that it's, um, you know, can be on streets long-term rather than 
necessarily tapping public funding. Great, thanks for those really insightful uh, uh, replies. And I think we've discussed some really interesting nuanced points today. Uh, and I wanna thank again, our three speakers from Broadband 17, Super Pedestrian and C2A. Uh, make sure to join us for the next installment of Pandemic Inve Venture Investment Series by SALT in partnership with our crowd taking place next Thursday. Um, today we heard from just three of over 200 companies in our portfolio. I welcome you all uh, to log on to ourcrowd.com. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com where you can see more technology startups and investment opportunities in both mobility and many other sectors. Uh, I want to thank again our, to our partners from SALT.